That's Bill Callahan bringing the Americana theme. Well, seven tracks on the show are all from the last month, so it's not all old music. You're with Julian on the brown note and a review of the movie Scarface, which would seem an odd one, but I'm trying to catch up on some of the older films that I've seen recently and sort of thought, I really want to review that because I've got something to say about them. But there's been quite a steady stream of sometimes lesser new movies coming out, so I didn't do it. I think one of the primary reasons I'm um, reviewing it is I grew up with Scarface, and even I think on the DVD that would have come out in the 90s, I grew up watching it on a terrible VHS transfer, and having seen it on TV recently, seeing it in full widescreen in high definition with the beautiful colours and the really stunning cinematography on it, I kind of had a new appreciation for it. Now, this is a story that begins with one of the most interesting orbiters of the whole sort of Spielberg, Scorsese hegemony of American cinema that grew up through the 70s. I've spoken at length about William Friedkin and my appreciation for his work and also Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas. Brian De Palma deserves his seat at the table. He, like I guess like Paul Verhoeven, is one of the most interesting directors in that he often makes very sensationalist, extreme, over-the-top, overblown films, often very controversial ones, that are teetering on the brink of genius or falling over. Um, He's from Newark, New Jersey, and I guess the first film that he was really came to prominence with was Carrie, which was, um, I think, the first Stephen King book and certainly the first Stephen King movie. Um, that came out in 76, and um, he went up and down. The Fury is a film I haven't seen for years. Uh, I remember the exploding body in it, which was, uh, I think it was telekinesis powers and stuff like that. But Dress to Kill and Blowout at the start of the 80s got a lot more critical acclaim. Um, but it was 1983's Scarface that sort of became indelibly linked to his sensationalist, overblown, very controversial style. And since then, it's, he's, had, he's had some really interesting films. I don't like The Untouchables. It certainly gets a lot of acclaim. Casualties of War is a very interesting film about the Vietnam War, featuring um, Sean Penn in a very early role about American GIs that end up raping a Vietnamese woman and Michael J. Fox fighting against him. It's a really interesting film. Carlito's Way, I've got a lot more respect for. It's a beautiful, elegiac gangster film, with, again, Al Pacino. Um, and then it's, it's kind of weird sort of run. Mission Impossible was very successful on release, but very not in his style. Uh, Snake Eyes was a worthy Nicolas Cage outing. And since then, it's just been films that haven't really existed in the Hollywood bubble and get $20,000 at the box office. But we're here to talk about Scarface and the other element of the main three, or one of the other two, is um, our Oliver Stone, who wrote the screenplay. And Oliver Stone was just coming to his fore. Um, he had, I think, made the Oscar-winning screenplay to uh, Midnight Express in 78. Um, and since then, he'd done Conan the Barbarian, which is kind of fitting. But Scarface was just before he would stop just making screenplays. And then, I think, was the most important film director of the 1980s, All his films are flawed. He's not a genius director, but he hit the zeitgeist more than any other man in the 80s. Um, Salvador, a look at Reagan's 
the Reagan era meddling in Central America was way ahead of the curve. Platoon kind of re it was the birthplace of that whole retrospective on Vietnam that dominated the mid eighties. Talk radio, a massively underseen film, kind of tapped into Trump America decades before it happened. This kind of very aggressive, vicious, racist part of America. He was tapping into with um, his look at talk radio, kind of preceded the whole Fox News era. Born on the 4th of July, another one that sort of solidified Tom Cruise's run throughout the 10 years of trying to get an Oscar, which never worked. The Doors was one of the most successful music biopics ever. And I think his best film, JFK, really, again, conspiracy theory heaven. He was so far ahead of the curve. And Natural Born Killers was one of the most controversial films ever made. I don't think it's a good one, but it is still a very nasty one. So those these two guys who are both have the potential to tip over into absolute horrible films of just way too much excess and violence and sleaze and um, pretension were both operating at their absolute peaks when it came to Scarface. And they were joined by a guy that was also operating at his peak, Al Pacino. And it was a really interesting take on the American dream. And it was based around the uh, Cuban refugee crisis of the uh, allegedly Fidel Castro just emptied all of his jails of all of the worst criminals. And tens of thousands of people fled Cuba to find a new life in Florida mainly. And in amongst those were tens of thousands of people that had been in jail for the most heinous crimes. And this coincided with um, the whole sort of Pablo Escobar era where cocaine came flooding into Miami, which was just a country cowpoke town at the end of the 70s, and built the whole thing into this multi-billion dollar enterprise awash with automatic gunfire. Uh, and it all became very um, notorious. I mean, Miami Vice was after Scarface, and they both sort of put this view of Florida on the map that was very different to what anyone had known before. And given that it was an extremely negative portrayal, it shows how the human mind works because it made it so alluring. Everyone wanted to go to Miami, even though it had this terrible reputation. So Scarface is a remake of um, I think a 1933 film, 1932 film, which again was a similar basic story. And the basic story is, and it's interesting, I was thinking about how many gangster films, how many classic gangster films are all based around immigrants coming to America. I mean, the Don Corleone. In the second Godfather film, we actually get his physical journey through Ellis Island. Even likes of Goodfellas, we're talking about immigrant communities, Jewish communities, Italian communities, Irish communities. And the American dream, a, a, a bastardized version of the American dream, a highly corrupted one, but still a version of it. And Tony Montana has become one of the most iconic characters in movie history. And I think Al Pacino's performance is very underappreciated. Like much of Scarface, it gets painted as a cartoon character. But you watch Al Pacino at the start of this film when he's this ambitious guy and quite a relatable one, even though he's obviously an arch-criminal. 
Um, but an ordinary guy who wants to make it big in America and the guy who's at the end who has been destroyed by absolute power, corrupting him absolutely, and who, importantly, is very bored. He sees the hypocrisy of the American dream. Say hello to the bad guy, he says in the restaurant scene at the e- near the end. He's bored of their hypocrisy and he probably wants to die. He's just done it all and it hasn't meant anything. And I think it's one of Pacino's best performances. So we start the whole affair uh, with Al Pacino being somebody that was probably in jail as an assassin, either for Castro or more likely for uh, opponents to Castro. And he arrives in Miami with his best friend, who's another... This is another reason why this film's so good. All of the side characters are excellent. Stephen Bauer as Manny Ray, his best friend. They end up in an internment camp in Florida. And a local criminal with Cuban connections ends up saying to them, you know, if you kill this guy who was one of um, Castro's enforcers responsible for torture and murder will bring you into the fold, and they do it. And they uh, they then become part of the criminal organisation of Robert, Robert Logier as Frank Lopez, who's a medium to big-time cocaine importer. And as soon as Al Pacino's Tony Montana gets there, he has ideas above his station pretty much straight away. Uh, and that mainly... Um, includes designs on Michelle Pfeiffer as Elvira, who's Frank's wife. Uh, And he pretty much goes for her from the start. And what happens then is we follow Al Pacino's rise through the ranks, eventually consuming his employer and becoming one of the biggest drug barons in America. And once he reaches higher levels of being a criminal, he realizes the amount of corruption that he has to partake in through politics, through police, And these grand international elements such as billion-dollar drug dealers from places like Colombia and Bolivia who are far, far bigger and more powerful and more scary than he is. And all along, he develops this intense arrogance which is tempered by his um, bullishness and also his, his, his kind of rejection of the hypocrisy that he sees all around him, especially when it comes to things like police and bankers as well, and the way that they profiteer off of this whole system where he's the bad guy, but everyone else is kind of making millions of dollars out of him being the bad guy and pretending that they're above it all when it's clear they're not. It's a very long film, and one of the best things I can say about it, it's 170 minutes, approaching three hours. Now, with De Palma and Oliver Stone at the controls, this could have easily been a very bloated affair, and you would expect it to be with those two people. It isn't. The screenplay has very few extraneous or unnecessary sequences or shots. Um, It actually is very lean. It's just a long story. And it's paced very, very well as we move through the stages of Tony Montana's career and the changes to his personality. Um, He develops a relationship with Michelle Pfeiffer, and thankfully this film has a really, really strong central female character I think Michelle Pfeiffer is one of the most underappreciated actresses there is. Some of the roles she's done, Catwoman in the second Batman film, that was an Oscar-worthy performance. She was amazing in that. Fabulous Baker Boys, I think she did win an Oscar for. But she is the archetypal ice maiden here. 
She is someone, you know, she's the mother's little helper of the cocaine generation, someone that needs a little bit of toot just to get through the day. Beautiful but bored and icy. She's the, one of the best ice queens in movie history here. And one of the things I love about this film is all of the side characters, from Frank Lopez, his boss, to Manny, his best friend, to Mary Elizabeth Mastriano. Is that her name? I always say her name wrong, who plays his sister and things... Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, I always get her name wrong, uh, who plays his sister, who arrives in Florida as well, but the mum won't have anything to do with him because he's a criminal. And they kind of represent the other side of the Cuban-American dream, which is just to be decent folk and live and work in hairdressers and make enough money to live. And she won't have anything to do with him. But the sister, his sister, gets sucked into the world as well. And he has a lot of hypocrisy because he won't let his best friend Manny go anywhere near his sister because, well, he's a hypocrite, really. He knows what they are. They're gangsters and the way they treat people. And he doesn't want his sister being around people like him, which is a really interesting central hypocrisy when he's so off against these people like bankers and cops and politicians for treating him worse than he is but he would be more than happy for his sister to end up with one of those just not someone like him it's um a film that was hugely controversial on release because of the at that point i think in his world record holding number of f words in the film um something that it was fittingly beaten by i think by goodfellas uh, it had more swearing than any film that had happened and some of the violence in it was notorious and involved cuts and uh, mainly it's actually not a massively violent film but the chainsaw incident where the guy has a chainsaw through the head near the very start of the film is still deeply upsetting uh, and that combined with the swearing and the relentless drug taking and with Goodfellas, the same mistaken think, thinking that they're glamorising this world. I don't know how you get to the end of Goodfellas or Scarface and think that this was a glamorous world. They don't have a very nice trajectory by the ends of either film. Everything has gone wrong. Um, but where this film is so interesting for me, it's the development of Al Pacino's boredom and his hatred of the system that he's a part of which I think elevates this far above just being um, a gangster that's got too big for his boots. I mean, you can look at something like American Gangster with um, Denzel Washington as just being a much straighter story. Here, Pacino becomes increasingly bored. He has an existential crisis to go alongside what's happening in the business world around him. He doesn't need to go down the path that he goes down, but it's almost like... He's become so big that he can see the whole world and it appalls him and he just wants to end things. And I get the impression that he does want to die by the end of the film. Now, this is a film that doesn't get its critical dues. Like I said, the screenplay for near three hours is incredibly tight. Another thing that's really, really stood out to me watching it on high definition is how well shot it is and how beautifully colour is used. Check this shirt out. I, I, this time around, I noticed that the shirt quite like this one that Al Pacino iconically wears near the start of the film, is echoed on the walls of Frank's business when Al Pacino goes to meet him and eventually kill him. Um, and there's a lot of really artistic use of colour in this film, um, more so, I think, than Miami Vice. And it's very well shot. 
Um, and that's something that I hadn't realised. I, I, I mentioned when I did the James Bond special, I saw all these films on TV in the 1980s on small screens. I had no idea that the cinematography was to the standard that it is. And that certainly is here. The music is by... The, uh, who did the music? Giorgio Moroder, an icon of electronic music and who was very big on music scores around this sort of electric dreams era and he provides a suitably gaudy yet very atmospheric musical backdrop um i think this film is really well put together and it is really well balanced um we get little bits and little changes continually at incremental moments throughout this film he's a he might be a gangster at the start but he's a pretty nice guy in some ways but the person at the end has gone through a Walter White transformation. And I think that the Walter White character of an essentially or apparently good guy that ends up being corrupted by their involvement in criminality, but who I think may have had that inside them already, is one of the most interesting tropes there is. And I would say the guy in um, Narcos Mexico has had the best post-breaking bad variant of that story uh, Walter White is probably the greatest embodiment of it as far as following someone for 60 episodes of Breaking Bad and seeing them go from this school teacher into the abomination of Heisenberg at the end is is one of the most shocking trajectories in any story on film um, but my theory is that he was Heisenberg and that he was pretending to be the nice guy. And the other one is actually Al Pacino again in The Godfather. Over The Godfather 1 and 2, he goes from being this really nice guy to being the most awful guy on the planet, worse even than Scarface. And um, it's interesting that that's the same actor, and then we get him in Carlito's way as a much more benign and honourable guy that's come out the other side unscathed almost. And it's his path that catches up with him then. I think this is a film that really has stood the test of time and it deserves to be mentioned in the same breath as The Godfather, as Goodfellas, as one of the greatest gangster films of all time. It's got a great screenplay, excellent cinematography. Um, it's very tight despite its long running time. It's vividly colourful. It has a timely focus on the immigrant population coming into Miami and it's a very strong film about the American dream thematically um, and it's got superb casting all of the people in it I think are really really good Al Pacino is excellent but so are the satellite characters as well uh, particularly Bauer as Manny and Michelle Pfeiffer um, they're really really strong characters across the board and it's a very rich and atmospheric film so I think this is something that deserves a lot more credit than it's given critically so I would suggest if you haven't seen it in full widescreen glory and you haven't seen it for a long time, and the reason, another reason I'm reviewing it is I'm reviewing Suspiria a little bit later and that director is remaking this film with the Coen brothers writing. So that's going to be very interesting because this is an archetype of the American dream. So Scarface deserves its seat at the big table not just for being a lurid populist film, but it's artistically very, very strong. So I'm going to give Scarface an extremely high 9.5 out of 10 for Al Pacino and Brian De Palma and Oliver Stone all operating on high-octane fuel at their very best in a, a world so lurid 
that it never gets the critical acclaim it deserves. Even now, it's got like 69% or something on Metacritic and 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. Well, I'm giving it a 9.5 out of 10 for Scarface. And continuing our Americana theme, this is Robbie Basho, who's uh, an acoustic guitar.